Good evening, folks. Welcome back to Anna Quarantina. We last left off with Anna leaving her brother's house in a sort of confusion and in hurry. She revealed to Dolly that she felt some sort of guilt or or some sort of stir in her from Vronsky, and she felt that she ruined her relationship with Kitty and that she embarrassed herself. It's kind of one of those feelings you get when you realize you might have something with someone that you shouldn't have, which is obviously a very interesting turn of events in this story. Let's find out what happens next. Well, it's all over, and thank God, was the first thought that came to Anna Arkadyevna when she had said goodbye for the last time to her brother, who stood blocking the way into the carriage until the third bell. She sat down in her plush seat beside Anushka and looked around in the semi-darkness of the sleeping car. Thank God, tomorrow I'll see Sirozhka and Alexei Alexandrovich and my good, unusual life will go on as before. Still, in the same preoccupied mood that she had been in all day, Anna settled herself with pleasure and precision for the journey. With her small, deft hands, she unclasped her little red bag, took out a small pillow, put it on her knees, reclasped the bag, and after neatly covering her legs, calmly leaned back. An ailing lady was already preparing to sleep, Two young ladies tried to address Anna, and a fat old woman, while covering her legs, made some observations about the heating. Anna said a few words in reply to the ladies, but foreseeing no interesting conversation, asked Anushka to bring out a little lamp, attached it to the armrest of her seat, and took a paper knife and an English novel from her handbag. At first she was unable to read. To begin with, she was bothered by the bustle and movement. Then, when the train started moving, she could not help listening to the noises. Then the snow that beat against the left-hand window and stuck to the glass, and the sight of a conductor passing by, all bundled up and covered with snow on one side. And the talk about the terrible blizzard outside distracted her attention. Further on, it was all the same, the same jolting and knocking, the same snow on the window the same quick transitions from steaming heat to cold and back to heat, the same flashing of the same faces in the semi-darkness, and the same voices, and Anna began to read and understand what she was reading. Anushka was already dozing, holding the little red bag on her knees with her broad hands in their gloves, one of which was torn. Anna Arkadyevna read and understood, but it was unpleasant for her to read, that is, to follow the reflection of other people's lives. She wanted too much to live herself. When she read about the heroine of the novel taking care of a sick man, she wanted to walk with inaudible steps round the sick man's room. When she read about a member of parliament making a speech, she wanted to make that speech. When she read about how Lady Mary rode to hounds, teasing her sister-in-law and surprising everyone with her courage, she wanted to do it herself, but there was nothing to do. And so, 
fingering the smooth knife with her small hands. She forced herself to read. The hero of the novel was already beginning to achieve his English happiness. A baryantancy and an estate, and Anna wished to go with him to this estate. When suddenly she felt that he must be ashamed, and that she was ashamed of the same thing. But what was he ashamed of? What am I ashamed of? she asked herself in offended astonishment. She put down the book and leaned back in the seat, clutching the paper knife tightly in both hands. There was nothing shameful. She went through all of her Moscow memories. They were all good, pleasant. She remembered the ball, remembered Vronsky and his enamored, obedient face, remembered all her relations with him. Nothing was shameful, but just there, at that very place in her memories, the feeling of shame became more intense, as if precisely then, when she remembered Vronsky, some inner voice were telling her, warm, very warm, hot. Well, what then? She said resolutely to herself, shifting her position in the seat. What does it mean? Am I afraid to look at it directly? Well, what of it? Can it be that there exists, or ever could exist, any other relations between me and this boy officer than those that exist with any acquaintance? She smiled scornfully and again picked up the book, but now was decidedly unable to understand what she was reading. She passed the paper knife over the glass, then put its smooth and cold surface to her cheek and nearly laughed aloud from the joy that suddenly came over for no reason. She felt her nerves tighten more and more, like strings on winding pegs. She felt her eyes open wider and wider, her fingers and toes move nervously. Something inside her stopped her breath, and all images and sounds in that wavering semi-darkness impressed themselves on her with extraordinary vividness. She kept having moments of doubt whether the carriage was moving forwards or backwards or standing still. Was that Anushka behind her? Or some stranger? Was it that on the armrest? A fur coat or some animal? And what am I? Myself or someone else? It was frightening to surrender herself to this oblivion. But something was drawing her in, and she was able, at will, to surrender to it or hold back from it. She stood up in order to come to her senses, threw the rug aside, and removed the pelerine from her warm dress. For a moment, she recovered and realized that the skinny music coming in, wearing a long, nakeen coat with a missing button, was the stoker, that he was looking at the thermometer, that wind and snow had burst in with him through the doorway. But then everything became confused again. His music, with the long waist, began to nod something on the wall. The old woman began to stretch her legs out the whole length of the carriage and filled it with a black cloud. Then something screeched and banged terribly, as if someone was being torn to pieces. Then a red fire blinded her eyes. Then everything was hidden by a wall. Anna felt as if she was falling through the floor. But all this was not frightening, but exhilarating. The voice of a bundled-up and snow-covered man shouted something into her ear. She stood up and came to her senses, realizing that they had arrived at a station, and the man was the conductor. She asked Anushka to hand her the pelerine and a shawl, but the mom 
and went to the door. Are you going out? asked Anushka. Yes, I need a breath of air. It's very hot in here. And she opened the door. Blizzard and wind came tearing to meet her and vied with her for the door. This, too, she found exhilarating. She opened the door and went out. The wind, as if only waiting for her, whistled joyfully and wanted to pick her up and carry her off, but she grasped the cold post firmly and, holding her dress down, stepped onto the platform and into the lee of the carriage. The wind was strong on the steps, but on the platform beside the train it was quiet. With pleasure, she drew in deep breaths of the snowy, frosty air and, standing by the carriage, looked around the platform and the lit-up station. The terrible snowstorms tore and whistled between the wheels of the carriages, over the posts and around the corner of the station. Carriages, posts, people, everything visible was covered with snow on one side and getting covered more and more. The storm would subside for a moment, but then return again in such gusts it seemed almost impossible to withstand it. Meanwhile, people were running, exchanging merry talk, creaking over the planks of the platform, and ceaselessly opening and closing the big doors. The huddled shadow of a man slipped under her feet, and there was the noise of a hammer striking iron. "'Give me the telegram!' a gruff voice came from across the stormy darkness. "'This way, please. Number twenty-eight. Various other voices shouted and bundled up. Snow-covered people ran by. Two gentlemen with the fire of cigarettes in their mouth walked past her, she breathed in once more to get her fill of air, and had already taken her hand from the muff to grasp the post and go into the chair, the carriage. When near her, another man, in a military greatcoat, screened her from the wavering light of the lantern. She turned, and in the same moment recognized the face of Vronsky. Putting his hand to his visor, he bowed to her and asked if she needed anything, if he might be of service to her. She peered at him for quite a long time without answering. Though he was standing in the shadow, she could see, or thought she could see, the expression of his face and eyes. It was again that expression of respectful admiration, which had so affected her yesterday. More than once, she had told herself during those recent days, and again, just now, that for her, Vronsky was one of, among hundreds of eternally identical young men, to be met everywhere, that she would never allow herself to even think of him. But now, in the first moment of seeing him, she was overcome by a feeling of joyful pride. She had no need to ask why he was there. She knew it as certainly as if he had told her that he was there in order to be where she was. I didn't know you were going. Why are you going? She said, letting fall the hand that was already holding the post, an irresponsible joy and animation shone on her face. Why am I going? he repeated, looking straight in her eyes. You know why I'm going, in order to be where you are, he said. I cannot do otherwise. And just then, as if overcoming an obstacle, 
The wind dumped snow from the roof of the carriage, blew some torn-off sheet of iron about, and from ahead a low train whistle howled mournfully and drearily. All the terror of the blizzard seemed still more beautiful to her now. He had said the very thing that her soul desired, but that her reason feared. She made no reply, and he saw a struggle in her face. Forgive me if what I have said is unpleasant for you, he said submissively. He spoke courteously, respectfully, but so firmly and stubbornly that for a long time she was unable to make any reply. What you're saying is bad, and I beg you, if you are a good man, to forget it, as I will forget it, she said at last. Not one of your words, not one of your movements will I ever forget, and I cannot. Enough! Enough! she cried out, trying in vain to give a stern expression to her face, into which he peered greedily. And placing her hand on the cold post, she went up the steps and quickly entered the vestibule of the carriage. But in this little vestibule she stopped, pondering in her imagination what has happened. Though she could remember neither his words nor her own, she sensed that this momentary conversation had brought them terribly close, and that this made her both frightened and happy. She stood for a few seconds, went into the carriage and took her seat. The magical, strained condition that had tormented her at the beginning not only renewed itself, but grew stronger, and reached a point where she feared that something wound too tight in her might snap at any moment. She did not sleep at all. But in that strain, in those reveries that filled her imagination, there was nothing unpleasant or gloomy. On the contrary, there was something joyful, burning, and exciting. Towards morning, Anna dozed off in her seat, and when she woke up, it was already white, bright, and the train was pulling into Petersburg. At once, thoughts of her home, her husband, her son, and the cares of the coming day and those to follow surrounded her. In Petersburg, as soon as the train stopped and she got off, the first face that caught her attention was that of her husband. Ah, oh, my God! What's happened with his ears, she thought, looking at his cold and imposing figure, and especially struck now by the cartilage of his ears propping up from the brim of his round hat. Seeing her, he came to meet her, composing his lips into his habitual mocking smile, and looking straight at her with his big wary eyes. Some unpleasant feeling gnawed at her as she met his unwavering and weary glaze as if she had expected him to look different. She was especially struck by the feeling of dissatisfaction with herself that she experienced on meeting him. This was an old, familiar feeling, similar to that state of pretense she experienced in her relations with her husband. But previously she had not noticed it, while now she was clearly and painfully aware of it. Yes, as you see, your tender husband... Tender as in the second year of marriage, is burning with desire to see you, he said in his slow, high voice, and in the tone he almost always used with her, 
a tone and mockery of someone who might actually mean what he said. Is Serioja well? she asked. Is that all the reward I get for my ardor? he had said. He's well. He's well. Ronsky did not even try to fall asleep at all that night. He sat in his seat, now staring straight ahead of him, now looking over the people going in and out. And if he had struck and troubled strangers before, his air of imperturbable calm, he now seemed still more proud and self-sufficient. He looked at people as if they were things. A nervous young woman across from him, who served on the circuit court, came to hate him for that look. The young man lit a cigarette from his, tried talking to him, and even jostled, to let him feel that he was not a thing but a human being. But Vronsky went on looking at him, as if a lamppost, and the young man grimaced, feeling that he was losing his self-possession under the pressure of this non-recognition of himself as a human being, and was unable to fall asleep because of it. Vronsky did not see anything or anybody. He felt himself a king, not because he thought he had made an impression on Anna, he did not believe that yet, but because the impression she had made on him gave him happiness and pride. What would come of it all? He did not know. He did not even consider. He felt that all his, all his heretoro dissipated, and dispersed forces were gathered and directed with terrible energy towards one's blissful goal. And he was happy in that. He knew only that he had told her the truth, that he was going where she was, that the whole happiness of life, the sole meaning of life, he now found in seeing her and hearing her. And when he got off the train at Bulagoy for a drink of seltzer water and saw Anna, his first words involuntary told her what he thought. And he was glad he had said it to her, that she now knew it and was thinking about it. He did not sleep all night. Returning to his carriage, he kept running through all the attitudes in which he had seen her, all her words, and in his imagination floated pictures of the possible future, making his heart stand still. When he got off the train in Petersburg, he felt animated and fresh after his sleepless night, as after a cold bath. He stopped by his carriage, waiting for her to get out. One more time, he said to himself, smiling involuntarily. I'll see her walk, her face. She'll say something, turn her head, look, perhaps smile. But even before seeing her, he saw her husband, whom the station master was courteously conducting through the crowd. Ah, yes, the husband. Only now did Vronsky understand clearly for the first time that the husband was a person connected with her. He knew she had a husband, but had not believed in his existence and fully believed in it only when he saw him, with his head, his shoulders, his legs in black trousers, and especially when he saw his husband, this husband calmly take her arm with a proprietary air. Seeing Alexei Alexandrovich, with his fresh Petersburg face, his sternly self-confident figure, his round hat and slightly curved back. He believed in him and experienced 
an unpleasant feeling, like that of a man suffering from thirst who comes to a spring and finds it in a dog, a sheep, or a pig, who is both drunk and muddy the water. The gait of Alexei Alexandrovich, swinging his whole pelvis and his blunt feet, was especially offensive to Vronsky. Only for himself did he acknowledge the unquestionable right to love her, but she was still the same, and her appearance still affected him in the same way. He told his German footman, who came running from second class, to take his things and go, and he himself went up to her. He saw the first meeting of husband and wife, and with the keen-sightedness of a man in love, noticed signs of the slight constraint with which she talked to her husband. No, she does not and cannot love him, he decided to himself. As he came up to Anna Arkandievna from behind, he noticed with joy that she, sensing his approach, looked around and, recognizing him, turned back to her husband. Did you have a good night, he said, bowing to her and her husband together and giving Alexei Alexandrovich a chance to take this bow to his own account and recognize him or not, as he wished. Very good, thank you, she replied. Her face seemed tired, and there was none of that play of animation in which begged to come out now in her smile, now in her eyes, yet for a moment, as she glanced at him, something flashed in her eyes, and although this fire went out at once, he was happy in that moment. She looked at her husband to see whether he knew Vronsky. Alexei Alexandrovich was looking at Vronsky with displeasure, absently trying to recall who he was. Vronsky's calm and self-confidence here clashed like steel against stone with the cold self-confidence of Alexei Alexandrovich. Count Vronsky, said Anna. Ah, we're acquainted, I believe, Alexei Alexandrovich said with indifference, offering his hand. You went with the mother and came back with the son, he said, articulating distinctly, as if counting out each word. You must be returning from leave, he said, and without waiting for an answer, addressed his wife in this bantering tone. So were there many tears shed in Moscow over the parting? By addressing his wife this way, he made it clear to Vronsky that he wished to be left alone, and turning to him, he touched his hat, but Vronsky added, uh, addressed Anna Arkadyevna. I hope to have the honor of calling on you, he said. Alexa Alexei Alexandrovich looked at Vronsky with his weary eyes. I'd be delighted, he said coldly. We receive on Mondays. Then, having dismissed Vronsky altogether, he said to his wife, And how good is it that I had precisely half an hour to meet you and that I've been able to show you my tenderness, continuing in the same bantering tone. You emphasize, you emphasize your tenderness far too much for me to value it greatly, she said in the same bantering tone, involuntarily listening to the sound of Vronsky's footsteps behind him. But what do I care, she thought, and began asking her husband how Seryozha had been in the time spent without her. Oh, wonderfully. Mariette says he was very nice, and I must upset you. Didn't miss you unlike your husband. But merci once again, my dear, for the gift of one day. Our dear Samovar will be delighted. He called the celebrated Countess Lydia Ivanovna Samovar.
because she was always getting excited and heated, heated up about things. She's been asking about you. And you know, if I may be so bold as to advise you, you might just go see her today. She takes everything to heart, so... Now, besides all the other troubles, she's concerned with reconciling the Oblonskys. Countess Lydia Ivanovna was her husband's friend and the center of one of the circles of Petersburg society with which Anna was most closely connected through her husband. I did write to her, but she needs everything in detail. Go, if you're not tired, my dear. Well, Condrati will take you in the carriage, and I'm off to the committee. I won't be alone at dinner any more. Alexey Alexandrovich went on, no longer in a bantering tone. You wouldn't believe how I've gotten used to. And pressing her hand for a long time, with a special smile, he helped her into the carriage. The first person to meet Anna at home was her son. He came running down the stairs to her, despite the cries of the governess, and with desperate rapture shouted, Mama! Mama! Rushing to her, he hung on her neck. I told you it was Mama, he cried to the governess. I knew it. And the son, just like the husband, produced in Anna a feeling akin to disappointment. She had imagined him better than he was in reality. She had to descend to, into reality to enjoy him as he was. But he was charming, even as he was, with his blonde curls, blue eyes, and full, shapely legs and tight-fitting stockings. Anna experienced almost a physical pleasure in the feeling of his closeness and caress, and a moral ease when she met his simple-hearted, trusting and loving eyes and heard his naive questions. She took out the presents that Dolly's children had sent and told her son about the girl Tanya in Moscow and how this Tanya knew how to read and even taught all the other children. And am I worse than she is? asked Seryozha. For me, you're the best in the world. I know that, said Seryozha, smiling. Before Anna had time to have coffee, Countess Lydia Ivanovna was announced. Countess Lydia Ivanovna was a tall, stout woman with an unhealthy yellow complexion and beautiful, pensive dark eyes. Anna loved her, but today she saw her as if for the first time with all her shortcomings. Well, my friend, did you bear the olive branch? Countess Lydia Ivanovna asked as soon as she came into the room. Yes, it's all over, but it was not as important as we thought, Anna replied. Generally, my belle sœur is too headstrong. But Countess Lydia Avinovna, who was interested in everything that did not concern her, had the habit of never listening to what interested her. She interrupted Anna. Yes, there is much woe and wickedness in the world, but I'm so exhausted today. What's wrong? asked Anna, trying to repress a smile. I'm beginning to weary of breaking lances for the truth in vain, and sometimes I go quite to pieces. The business with the little sisters, this was a philanthropic, religious, and patriotic institution, would have gone splendidly, but it's impossible to do anything with these gentlemen, Countess Lydia Ivanovna added in mock submission to her fate. They seized on the idea, distorted it, and now discuss it in this petty, worthless fashion. Two or three people, your husband among them, understand the full significance of this business, but the others only demean it. 
Yesterday, Pravdin wrote to me. Pravdin was a well-known pan-slavist who lived abroad. Countess Lydia Ivanovna proceeded to recount the contents of his letter. Then she told of further troubles and schemes against the cause of church unity and left hurriedly. Because that afternoon, she still had to attend a meeting of some society and then of the Slavic Committee. All of this was there before, but why didn't I notice it before? Anna said to herself. Or is she very irritated today? In fact, it's ridiculous. Her goal is virtue. She's a Christian, yet she's angry all the time. And they're all her enemies. And they're all enemies on account of Christianity and virtue. After Countess Lydia Ivanovna had left, an acquaintance came, the wife of a director, and told her all the news about town. At three o'clock, she also left, promising to come for dinner. Alexei Alexandrovich was at the ministry. Finding herself alone, Anna spent the time before dinner sitting with her son while he ate. He dined separately, putting her things in order and reading and answering the notes and letters that had accumulated on her desk. Her agitation and the sense of groundless shame she had experienced during the journey disappeared completely. In the accustomed conditions of her life, she again felt herself firm and irreproachable. She recalled the ast- with astonishment her state yesterday. What happened? Nothing. Vronsky said a foolish thing, which it was easy to put an end to, and I replied as I ought to have done. To speak of it with my husband is unnecessary and impossible. To speak of it would mean giving importance to something that has none. She recalled how she had told him of a near declaration that one of her husband's young subordinates had made to her in Petersburg, and how Alexei Alexandrovich had replied that, Living in society, any woman may be subject to such things, but that he fully trusted her tact and would never allow either himself or her to be demeaned by jealousy. So there's no reason to tell him. Yes, thank God. And there's nothing to tell, she said to herself. Alexei Alexandrovich returned from the ministry at four o'clock. And we'll leave it there. Sorry, I just realized those were our ten pages. Got kind of caught up in there. Uh, Story for a sec. Whew, things are heating up. This Vronsky-Anna situation is very enticing to me seems like she's sort of unraveling here. Without they both are kind of going out of their way to either suppress something that is clearly a thing or to pursue it even though it's against all sort of decorum. (laughs) I'm into it. Well, those were our ten pages, folks. Wishing you all well. Sweet dreams. Good night.